Uh, Exodus 33, uh, again, my name is Kenson. I have the honor of serving as a pastor here at Park, specifically our Bridgeport location. So really glad to be with you guys today. Now, today as we wrap up our summer sermon series in the book of Exodus, an incredible narrative of God's power to deliver his people from bondage and slavery. We have mentioned throughout these verses here, throughout the series here, again, that as you look at the story of Exodus, you begin to see pictures of our story in this, that because of our sin, we were in spiritual slavery and left to ourselves, we had no hope that we could not free ourselves. But God raises up a mediator. He raises up a hero to save the people. And And for Israel, it was Moses. And for the new covenant people, it's Jesus Christ, the ultimate mediator who gives us the ultimate exodus. So where we finish up today is going to be in chapters 33 and 34. And some of you might be wondering, well, Kenson, doesn't Exodus end at chapter 40? It does, smarty pants. It does, okay? Now, the reason we're ending at 33 and 34 is because these later chapters in 35 to 40, they actually repeat a lot of the same themes that we've already taught about, that it's just the execution of these things now. So now it's the setting up of the Ark of the Covenant, setting up the lampstand, the tabernacle, the priest, and so forth. So we thought that it would be good to end with chapters 33 and 34 because it brings us back to the very purpose again of the Exodus. It's so that everyone would know that he is the Lord. And the way that he reveals himself today is one of the most clear and direct ways next to Jesus Christ, and that's by allowing his glory to pass by Moses. So with that, let's read some verses here, and we'll jump in, okay? So we'll be jumping a little bit here, okay? So Exodus 30, 33, Exodus 33, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Jump to verse 15, chapter 33, verse 15. And Moses said to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see it and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you can stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you in my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And let's jump to chapter 34, verse 5. Chapter 34, verse 5. 
the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but, for, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. What's the boldest request you've ever made to God? What's the boldest request you've ever made? You know, maybe for some of our students, God, please help me to pass this semester or this class. God, help me to get this job. Maybe for young parents, God, I just want six hours of sleep. God, oh, we have a young parent back there. Okay, all right. God, help this person to, to fall in love with me. God, heal this sickness and cancer com completely. God, I want my parents to know and love Jesus. God, I want injustice and racism to end. Or, or something that we pray a lot here at Park. God, reach all of Chicago and all the nations with your gospel. And my son's favorite prayer is that I want to play video games and never go back to school. That's his favorite prayer. These are all big and bold prayers, but can I tell you something? These prayers have nothing on Moses. Chapter 33, verse 18, Moses says to God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Moses is nuts. Well, what is he asking for here? Now, as you hear him say this, you've got to be thinking, Moses, You've already seen his glory, man, right? Surely you've seen his glory in the burning bush. You've seen his glory in the ten plagues. You've seen his glory when he parted the Red Sea and made it dry enough for you guys to cross. Surely you've seen his glory when he crushed Pharaoh's army. Surely you've seen his glory in the pillar of cloud and fire. Moses, you have seen God's glory. And do you know what Moses would say? He would say, yes, I have seen his glory, but I want more. I want to go deeper and further, and I know there is so much more to experience. I'm hungry for his glory. Let me ask you, do you pray like this? Are you desperate for God's glory? You know, the context of our verses today, we see Israel at a crossroads. You know, Exodus, Exodus 32 has just happened, and Rafe did a fantastic job talking about what happened last week. But just to remind you guys, Moses has been up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, and the people are anxious because they didn't know how long he was going to be up there, and this feels like a very long time. So they're worried, like, is he dead? Uh, we can't keep living like this. We can't keep living in the wilderness, living in tents, you know, manna and and quail, you know, if, if, you have a, if you have a young family or little kids, you can just imagine how chaotic this would have all been. Like, what's going on? We need some direction. So Aaron feels a lot of pressure here to do something. So he goes back to something very familiar. And he goes ahead and says, let's go ahead and make a golden calf. Like one of the golden gods of Egypt. So they make a golden calf and they worship this calf and they have an all-night orgy. That they take the very gold God gave them. It was a gift, a gift as they left Egypt. Almost like a wedding present. And now they've used it to worship a false god. It's kind of like this. 
It's like a spouse taking a wedding ring, going to a pawn shop, getting money for it so that they can now have an affair. Do you realize how much this golden calf moment, how much chapter 32 would have hurt the heart of God? So Moses comes down, he can't believe what he's seeing, and God punishes sin. 3,000 people die, and God sends a plague later on. It was a bad day for Israel. And it's at this point, they face a crossroads. Chapter 33, verse 3, says this, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people, that because of your sinful stubbornness, I'm not going to walk with you anymore. But this is what's fascinating, that even though God will not go with them now the rest of the way, he still will honor his promises. I will still give you the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. I will still go ahead and defeat all your enemies, and one of my angels will lead the way. In other words, you will have success. You will have military success. You will have economic success. I will give you power and prosperity. I will give you prestige. Your life is going to be great. But here's the one thing. My presence will not go with you. You won't have me. Now let me pause here and ask you, how do you think you would respond to this? Now, we're at church here today, so I think we all know kind of the right answer. And say, like, no, I wouldn't want this. You know, this would make me sad. But would it really make you sad? Seriously, would it really make you sad? Because isn't this what most people want anyway? That they want the blessings of God without any of the work of having a relationship with God. Oh, wow, we get the blessings of God, but I don't need to go to the tabernacle, offer sacrifices, confess and repent sin. This is fantastic, right? That there are people who do this, that, that they, they say a prayer for Jesus to come into their heart, and they're like, great, I got my ticket to heaven, and now I can live any which way I want. Or, or even for those who claim to be desperate for God, that the, real, the only reason that they're desperate is because they're in a bad spot. That I'm desperate for God to fix this circumstance. I'm desperate for you, God, to make my life right. But what happens when life is good and when the trials have gone away? We stop becoming desperate. Do you guys see here? The crossroads that the Israelites face is the very same choice you are faced with every single day. Will you be desperate for God? Will you put his glory above everything else, above success, above health, wealth, prosperity, and the American dream? What we're going to see here with Moses is that Moses is desperate. Then in verse 3, God says that he won't go with the people, but I'll send an angel. And Moses says, not good enough. If you don't come, we're not going. All right, all right. Verse 17, God says, fine, fine, fine. I will go with you. And Moses says again, still not good enough. Show me your glory. This is a guy who loves God and loves to be with him. So with that, let me just share with you three reasons why we should be desperate for God's glory. Okay? First is this. Let me just show it to you if you guys like to take notes. First is that we, may, we are made for God's glory. Second, we are redeemed by God's glory. 
And third, we shine God's glory. Okay, made, redeemed, and shine. So here's, here's the first point. We are desperate for God's glory because we're made for God's glory. Now, the word glory literally means weighty or heavy. It means a person with substance, significance, worthy of honor. So for example, like uh, if you see someone who does something really impressive or they really excel at something, excel at something, we would say to them, you know, that's solid. You know, he or she is solid. You guys are like, we don't say that. Okay, I say that, okay? So if I say that to you, it's a very good thing, okay? So God is solid. He is glorious. And this is the descriptor that is used over and over again of him in Scripture. Psalm 29.3, the God of glory. Psalm 8.1, his glory is above the heavens. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Glory is who God is, and thus everything he does is glorious. You know, for example, you might see someone who really excels at something and thus makes them worthy of attention and recognition. That's glory. It's like Michael Jordan playing basketball with the Bulls in the 90s. He was glorious, okay? There was no comparison to him. But then one year, he decided to play baseball. He was not glorious playing baseball. And then he decided to come out of retirement of basketball. He was not glorious either playing for the Wizards, right? Jordan was glorious, but he was only glorious in one sport for a short period of time. God is glorious all the time in and in everything that he does. There is nothing God touches that he does not excel in. And this is the very understanding of God's glory that makes Moses desperate for God. Let me show you uh, chapter 33, verse 15 here. Moses says this to God. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? For Moses, either there is no God and my life means nothing, or there is a God and nothing else matters but my relationship to him. Moses knew that the only one who made him special, the only one who made the people of God special, was God. Uh, the word distinct here is literally, is actually in Hebrew, a word, a form of the word holy. And when you think about this, what would make the nation of Israel different than any other nation? Was it their land? Well, no, they're, they're wandering in the wilderness. It, it was their resume. No, they, they were slaves. Okay, it was their obedience and righteousness. They just worshipped a golden calf. What set them apart was not what they had. It was not where they were from. It was not what they looked like. What made them distinct, what made them holy was God's covenant promise to them. I will be your God and you will be my people. Can I just say that as Christ followers, this is our special sauce. This is our special sauce. It's not that we're more comfortable or more wealthier or more powerful. Anyone else can have that. We've been made for God's 
glory. I love what Rafe was praying here earlier as I was walking down the hallway, and I just heard someone say, who cares if we don't have in a house? We have you. I was like, that's clearly Rafe talking right now. But that's exactly what's happening here. We are made for God's glory. That's what makes us special. And this is something since the beginning of creation that God has placed on our hearts a hunger for his glory. You know, in Genesis, in the creation account, Man and woman are created in his image. And as Adam and Eve are created, do you remember the words that God says to them? He says, this is very, this is very good. Can you imagine that if you were Adam and Eve and you heard this from God? There can be no greater words of affirmation. I approve you. I'm thrilled by you. I delight in you. This is the wonderful state of glory that God created us to enjoy. But when we sinned, we disconnected ourselves from that glory. That's why it says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Did you know that every sin we commit happens because we lack a desire for God's glory. That we start looking for other things to satisfy this hunger for glory instead of God. You know, J.R. Vassar, a pastor in Texas, he said this in his book, Glory Hunger. Let me show you what he says in his book. He says this, we are broken people looking to other broken people to fix our broken lives. We are glory deficient people looking to other glory deficient people to supply us with glory. Looking to other people to provide for us what they lack themselves is a fool's errand. It is futile to look to other glory-hungry people to fully satisfy our glory hunger, and doing so leaves our souls empty. We are made to enjoy and reflect the glory of one, and that's God himself. You know, God here makes this plea for God's presence, And I want to show you how God responds to this plea. Verse 17, chapter 33, verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do, for for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Notice how God fills that hunger for glory that comes from disobedience. He does so by telling Moses, I see you. You have favor in my sight, and I know you. It's personal and relational. I know you by name. There can be no greater words of affirmation that can be said to anyone by anybody else. I see you. I see you, and I know you. I know who you are. This is the acceptance and significance and worth that we all need proclaimed over us by the only one who matters. Did you know that if you are a Christ follower, God right now proclaims his glory over you? That in Christ, you are known and loved. That in Christ, God looks at you and says, very good, very good. What that means is that you don't have to look to your spouse for worth. 
your children, your work, your achievements, how much you make, how little you make, who you hang out with, who you don't hang out with, you know, how little kids you have, how many kids you have. Those things will never fill that hunger for glory that God has placed there just for himself and nobody else. Let me show you what Augustine says about this. Augustine says, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in thee. How true are those words? Here's the second point. Moses was desperate for God's glory because we are redeemed by it. Now, in our verses, there's an incredible tension that needs to be solved. When God says he won't go with them, that's both an act of judgment and mercy. Judgment because of their disobedience, but also mercy because he doesn't want to destroy them. But this puts Israel in an impossible situation because just like we talked about, we can't live without God's glory. We need his glory. But at the same time, we can't live with his glory or or else he'll wipe us out. This basically sums up the entire plot of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. How can a holy and glorious God dwell in the midst of sinful people? The answer is that he can't do it. He can't do it. You know, what we see here with Israel is a picture of what it means to spiritually backslide. Of what it means to spiritually backslide. Now, if you've been a Christ follower for any period of time, you have experienced this to some degree. Backsliding is a season of life where sin grows stronger and obedience declines. Now, let me be clear. Not all sin is backsliding. The Christian life is a constant cycle of sin and repentance, sin and repentance, sin and repentance. It's a constant cycle. What makes backsliding backsliding is when that cycle of repentance is broken for a very long time. And because of that, you move from being spiritually hot to being someone who is spiritually cold. And some of you here today, you know exactly what that means. Maybe right now, you're in that season right now, and you're not sure how to get out of it. So the question we have to ask here for ourselves here and also for Israel and for Moses, how in the world am I going to have a restored relationship with God? It's found in the glory of God. It's found in the glory of God. I want to show you how this happens. Listen to what happens as, God, as God's glory passes over Moses as he's in the cleft of the mountain. This is what's said, chapter 34, verse 6. It says this, The Lord passed by him and proclaimed, listen to these words, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and on the children and the children's children on the third and fourth generation. Now, notice here that when the glory of God passes, there's never a mention of something that is seen. There's no mention that there is a light that's shining. No mention, and I know that there's words like God says, you know, hand, my back, face. There's no mention when this happens, no mention of visually of what's happening. Instead, as the glory passes, we get a proclamation. 
we get a revelation of who God is. And what this tells us is that the essence of God's glory is seen in his character. It is found in his compassion, in his grace, in his forgiveness, in how he is slow to anger, in his justice. And you see what's so beautiful here? God is saying that if you want to feel the full weight of my glory, you will see it in my love for you. God says that I'm glorious because I'm gracious. I do not give my children the punishment that they deserve. I give them unearned favor. I'm glorious because I'm merciful. I'm not harsh and cruel. I am not indifferent to you. I'm glorious because I'm slow to anger. Can you imagine if God had a short temper, just how terrifying that would be? But instead, we have a God who absorbs, who absorbs, who takes the shots over and over and over again. God continues on and says, I'm glorious because I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I love that word abound because it means that he has plenty to give that he's never going to run out of love and faithfulness towards us, that he will always keep his word, that he will always remember his promises. And he says here that I'm glorious because I'm forgiving. I will cancel your debt of sin. But this brings us to our point of tension again, because right after he says forgiveness, he says that I will not clear the guilty. Same problem. What are we going to do with this? God, how can you cancel the debt of sin, but how can you cancel the debt of sin, but yet, you know, hold people guilty? Uh, God, how can you do this? How can you honor the glory of your love? And how can you honor the glory of your justice? This is how he does it. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. He sends his one and only son to the cross. That it's in Jesus we have the glory of God displayed. Let me just show you three verses here that point to this. John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1.3. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory. Not a ray of God's glory. He is the very radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the glory of God in the flesh. That Jesus is a glorious picture of God's mercy and grace and faithfulness and patience and justice. That it's in Jesus, he is the very, then Jesus, the very radiance of God's glory. He goes to the cross to die for our sins. That on the cross, do you remember Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That did you know that for the very first time in the history of the universe, Jesus could not see the face of his father? That he was being ignored. He was being treated as insignificant. He was not being glorified. Why did Jesus allow this all to happen to him? It's so that we would be able to see the face of God. It's so that we could have that. 
It's so that we would be able to be matter to God. It's so that Jesus could honor the glory of God's love to forgive us and also honor the glory of God's justice and holiness by dying for our sins. And do you know what this means to you who are lost, broken, and discouraged? To those of us, those of us who have spiritually backslided, God's glory in Jesus Christ has redeemed you. That when you think about it, all backsliding is because of a lack of indifference to God's glory. But when you have a chance to see the gospel fresh and anew, can you see how the glory of Christ makes all the difference? That it's in the glory of Christ. He has written a different story for you. That for the downcast, God is gloriously compassionate. For the undeserving, God is gloriously gracious. For the defiant, God is gloriously patient. For the unwanted, God is gloriously loving. For the doubtful, God is gloriously faithful. For the disobedient, God is gloriously forgiving. For the empty, God is gloriously abundant. No matter how much you've rejected, no matter how much you've turned away, His glory will never run out for you. Amen? Amen. His glory will always pursue you. Here's the third point, and also our point of application. We should be desperate for God's glory because we shine God's glory. You know, let me, let me show you a few verses here, you know, that we didn't have a chance to read. But now Moses comes back down from Mount Sinai for the second time now, for the second time, and the glory of God passed over him, okay? Let me show you what happens afterwards. Chapter 34, verse 29. It says that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. And verse 33, and when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. So Moses here encounters God's glory. He comes back down, and his face is shining. Now, that's all we know. We don't know exactly what this shining meant. We don't know if it was scary, if it was beautiful. We don't know if his face was, you know, disfigured or if it was a really bad sunburn. We just don't know. But what we do know is that it was very overwhelming, and it had to be covered. And this is what I love about this scene here, is that Moses comes down, after spending time with God, and he's shining. Can, can I tell you something? That this is what happens when we spend time with God. We too will shine. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, we are told that as Christ followers, we're being sanctified towards this glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18, let me show it to you. And notice the common language that is shared here with our verses. It says in 3.18, and we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now notice, in, now notice this verse here. How does transformation happen? How do we spiritually grow? How, how, do we, how do we shine for the glory of Jesus here? It's just like Moses. It's by beholding. We become what we behold. 
That as we spend time being with the one who is gloriously merciful, we will become merciful. That when we spend time with the one who is gloriously patient, loving, and faithful, we become the same. We will shine and we won't even know it because we've just been spending time with him. You know, for example here, for example, have you ever met someone that you knew was just walking so closely with the Lord? That it was impossible for them to hide their joy. That their response to circumstances and situations was just so different than anyone else's. That when you were in a prayer meeting with them and you had a chance to pray, you're like, whoa, their prayers are so intimate. Like, they're they're talking to God, like, directly. It's, It's crazy. Or that you see people always wanting to go, go to them for counsel because every time they talk, they just sounded like scripture. It was amazing that these were people who were so bold and courageous with God's word, that God's word was not something to apologize, but God's word was reality. That this was the kind of people that you met. This is a person who's shining. It's impossible to hide this. You know, for example... You know, my kids sneak into the pantry and they eat candy. Now, they can deny it all they want, but once they open their mouths and I see a blue tongue, blue teeth, I'm like, you know what, you're guilty, all right? Or, or imagine that you've been out partying and the cops pull you over and you say, oh, I've been nowhere. The alcohol you give off, they're going to know where you've been. Or, or maybe you just finished exercising and you don't have time to shower, so you say, like, you know, I'll be fine. You put on your fancy clothes, you put on the old deodorant, and you cover up and you think, I'm all good. But guess what? That musk that you're giving off in the office, everyone knows where you've just been, all right? You can't hide it. I say this because it's easier than we might think for people to know where you've been. And this includes whether or not We've been in the glory presence of God. Let me ask you, would the people around you, would the closest people in your life say, they're shining. They are shining. Now you guys might be wondering now, well, Kenson, okay, all right, all right, we get it. How do we do this? How do we behold God? You know, how does this all happen? You know, I don't have a magical formula here. Here it is. Go to the word of God. Go to the Word of God. It's, it's almost every application I have. Go to the Word of God. Do you know why? Because it's in the Word of God. He has revealed himself just like he did with Moses on the mount. It's in the Word we get the revelation, the proclamation of his character. It's in the Word we get the whole redemption story. It's in the Word we meet Jesus Christ. We see his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. If you spend rich time in the Word, studying, meditating, applying, hearing from God, you will shine. You will reflect God's glory to everyone else. And let me just give you one more application as we wrap up to shine God's glory. It's to live in continual dependence on God. If you want to shine God's glory, live in continual dependence on God. That just like Moses here, he says, God, if you're not coming, we ain't moving because I ain't going anywhere without you. That you've given me a work, you've given me a mission to go do, and I can't do it without you. As a matter of fact, if I take a step apart from your presence, apart from your glory, it would be a disaster. When we are desperate for God, 
we will give him glory. Because we live in a culture of self-sufficiency and pride. We live in a culture that says, I can do it myself. I can provide for my family. I can get that degree on my own. I can fix my marriage. I can conquer that sin. I can grow this church on my own. This brings God no glory whatsoever. This brings glory to me, to us. If you want to bring God glory, we need to become vulnerable and needy for Him. And what that means is that for husbands, you can't love your wife like Christ loved the church without God's help. It means wives, you can't support your husband and affirm him without God's help. It means pastors and elders, you can't grow this church, you can't fulfill the Great Commission without God's help. It means in 1 Corinthians 10.31, when Paul says, whether you eat or drink, do it for the glory of God, you can't do the most mundane and daily of things without recognizing that it is God who supplies the food and breath that you have right now. It's when we understand that everything is just too big for us when we begin to give God glory in every aspect of our lives. That he will shine everywhere and anywhere and all the time. Amen? Amen. So let me ask you one more time. Are you desperate for his glory? Are you desperate? Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, forgive us for seeking glory in lesser things, seeking glory in temporal things, seeking glory in other finite people, broken people, finite objects, whatever it is, God. And God, many of these things are not bad things, they're good things, but instead of us looking towards you, we we make them the ultimate thing. God, forgive us. Father, help us to find joy, delight, and satisfaction in the only glory that will last for all eternity, and that's in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I also want to pray for this church. I want to pray for all the churches that preach the gospel, that, Father, that you would help us to shine. That, God, that we would pray that we would be able to reach everybody in the South Loop area, everyone in the University Village area, everyone in Bronzeville area, everyone in Chinatown, everyone that's all around us. God, help us to do so. Not through technique, not because we've read the latest book on mission, but God, help us to be able to reach people because they see that we are shining because we have spent time in the glory presence of God. Father, help us to do that. Lord, help your spirit to work. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.